Hello and welcome back to our study of the Dhammapada. Today we continue with verse 141, which reads as follows. Nanagacharya najarta napanka nanasaka tandila sayikawa rajojalang ukutika padhanang sodhenti matchang avitina kankhang which means not by practicing nudity, going naked, not by having dreadlocks, jarta, not by smearing oneself with filth, panka. Nanasaka means not going without food, tandirasahikawa, or lying on the ground, sleeping on the rock. Rajojalang practicing uh, wearing dust, so there are pra people who practice by smearing themselves with dirt. Ukutika padhanang, or being dedicated to squatting, which is apparently a practice. So dainti machang avitina kangang. None of these things can purify a person who has not overcome doubt. And so this is a very important teaching for meditators. The story actually has little to do with the verse, except indirectly, but for those of you who like stories, we'll go through it. So the it happens that in, in the time of the Buddha there was a certain kutumbika, which means a, just a lay person, some man. When his, when his wife died, he decided to become a monk. And he wasn't really, it was more just because he had nothing else to do with his life and because I guess he heard that the Buddha was um, somehow a great teacher and so it would be good to become a monk under him but he didn't, it, sound, it seems like he didn't really practice the Buddha's teaching much because before he became a monk he had a, he had a hut built for himself and he arranged his servants as a fairly wealthy man he arranged for his servants to come and take care of him stocked up one of the rooms with all sorts of food and, and condiments and so on and had his servants cook food and take care of him and and uh, he kept a great number of robes and all sorts of belongings, none of which was really allowed, none of which was allowed as a monk. So the monks found out about this, and they came and they say, "You know, wh whose are all these things? They said, oh, these are mine." And he said, "Well, don't you don't you understand that as a monk you're only allowed to have three robes, and that none of these things are in line with the practice of the Buddha's teaching?" And here you've you've left the world, and yet you've brought it with you. This sort of thing happens, you know. It's kind of interesting about people, their understanding of what it means to become a monk, and how easily people slip back into the role of a layperson, you know, wearing comfortable clothes and sleeping on comfortable beds and asking for special food and so on.
and we're only allowed three rooms. We have sleep on the floor. We have to be content with whatever food we're given. So they brought him to the Buddha, they chastised him and brought him to the Buddha, and, and the Buddha asked him, is this true? And, we, and then he said, well, uh, how is it that you, in spite of the fact that I've expressly taught that you should be satisfied with little, that you possess yourself with so much? Why are you so caught up in all these luxuries? And so the Buddha was actually quite a mild chastisement, and the monk got really angry, um, which really showed that he didn't have much spiritual progress whatsoever. And so he got up and said, "Fine, you want you you want me to be content?" And he pulled off his robe and threw it to the ground, and was wearing just his under robe, his lower skirt robe. And they said, "There, now I'm now now you see I'm content." And the Buddha just shook his head and said, that's not how one is content. And said, uh, you know, in the past, and, he, and then he says, you know, yeah, in your past lives, even, even, as a, even as a water spirit, so we're going to get one of these magical stories, even as a water spirit, you practiced, you practiced modesty and fear of, of evil. You practiced good things. You practiced heavenly, divine teachings. The teaching of the gods. How is it that now as a monk, under me as a teacher, you know, surrounded by all these wise and spiritual individuals that you, know, you get angered at so little and that you, you don't know, you don't know contentment or modesty and you don't know what's in your own best interest. And so the monk feeling ashamed and you know moved by the fact that the Buddha wasn't upset or didn't react to his anger, he started to sort of get a feeling for the greatness of what he was involved in and the importance of what he was failing to accomplish. And so he sat down, took put his robe back on, sat down and asked the Buddha for some details about his past lives. So I have a story here of a past life, which I don't always relate these, but this one is actually somewhat interesting. It goes that, if a bit fantastical, so it goes that there are these uh, these three three princes. This king um, had, had a, a wife with two sons, and then the mother died and he took on another queen who had a third son. And he was so happy with the third son that he said somewhat carelessly, and I grant you a boon. He granted the mother some kind of boon for giving him a son. It's a thing that kings do. And so she waited, and as they grew up, when they were starting to get you know, in their teens, she said to the king, she said, I'd, I'd like that boon from you. And she said, I, w I want you to give my son the kingdom. And the king said, well, but I have these other two older sons. I can't give your son the kingdom. And she said, well, that's my boon, that's what my the wish. And he said, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't give it to you. And she was kind of upset and somewhat, um, seemed, seemed to be somewhat uh, un, un, unaccepting of the king's wishes. And so he thought, 
he thought to himself, he, he said, he, he called his two sons and he said, look, you know, I grant that, that my new queen is not the uh, pinnacle of virtue that I may have thought, and she may hurt you, she may cause some harm to you, so what I want you to do is go and live in the forest, and when you come of age, then come back, and or when I die, so when I die, you come back and you take over the kingdom. For now, there's there's nothing for you to do here anyway. You go and live in the forest as ascetics. I guess that was also a thing that kings do. In, in that, those times, it was, I think, common for people to go and live in the forest as ascetics. And so on their way out, they found the third son, and, and the, he said, the third prince, and the, he said, hey, where are you guys going? He said, well, and they related to him the problem, and he said, oh, well, I'll come with you. I'm not gonna stay here. I guess he wasn't all that um, attached to his mother, or maybe he was just aware of her cruel, her, her evil nature. And so they all went to the forest. And they lived in the forest for some time, but it so happened that there was a water sprite near living nearby. And the water sprite is kind of like a water demon, you know, this, this sort of potentially malevolent being who preys on innocent followers, innocent uh, travelers through the forest. And he had to deal with one of, the, one of the gods that anyone who came and drank from his, this pond that he was uh, haunting, that he could eat them. And so these three un, unwittingly came and set up a camp near this, so just not, some, not so far from this, this pond. And so the oldest son, who was actually the bodhisattva, the Buddha-to-be, sent the youngest son to, down to the, the pond to get them some water. When he got to the water, um, he bent down to, to get some water and the sprite came up and seized him. And it turns out there was a stipulation to his, uh, his this granting of this this power over the pond, the, the this angel who granted it to him, I think it was uh, Wesawana, yeah. Wesawana was one of the sort of a demigod or one of the gods, one of the angels. Um, he had a stipulation to. Him. He said, "You can eat anyone who comes unless they know uh, Deva Dhamma, unless they know the heavenly Dhammas, unless they know what is Deva the Deva Dhamma." So the idea was you can't eat people who are righteous and holy and understand the truth, understand what is right and pure. You can eat normal people, ordinary people. So this angel grabbed, this, this, this sprite grabbed the youngest son and asked him, do you know what is the heavenly dhammas? And he said, the youngest son said, or sorry, it's probably better to translate Deva Dhamma as that which has the nature of, of, of heaven, that which is heavenly, that which is godlike. And he said, well, the, the sun and the moon are godlike, are Deva Dhamma. These are things that are the nature to be, the nature of a heavenly nature. And the sprite shook his head and said, "You don't know what is De the Deva Dhamma. What is Deva Dhamma?" So he grabbed him and he uh, imprisoned him for eating later. 
And the elder son, not not hearing back from the youngest, the, the eldest brother, not hearing back from the youngest brother, sent the number two son, the number two brother, off to see what was going on. And when he got there, same thing. Sprite came up, asked him what is heavenly. And he said, well, the four directions, those are heavenly, those are godlike. You guys didn't really have a clue. And you don't know. And so I put him in prison as well. You know, these two tasty meals to eat at a later time. And finally the bodhisattva came down looking for his two brothers and he saw that these two sets of footprints were going towards the the pond and realized that you know, there's some, they realized there must be some, some evil spirit dwelling here that's eating my brothers. Some kind of monster that's eaten my brothers or taken them. And so he picked up his sword and his bow and he sat by the lake and he waited, the pond and he waited. And the sprite, seeing that he didn't go into the pond, came out of the pond and turning himself, disguising himself as a, as a hunter or someone living in the forest, said, hey, why don't you come and drink? You must be, you must be thirsty. And right away he knew that this was the, the monster and he said, what have you done with my brothers? And he said, why did you do that? Why did you seize them? He said, well, I take all that descend. I take all that come to the lake. He said, everybody? And he said, well, except those who know what is godlike, except those who know what is dhamma, what is devadhamma. What are those things that are truly godlike? And it seems that this sprite was really concerned about this and actually didn't know. It had been something that he had been looking to know, looking to learn. And so the Bodhisattva, well, I can teach you what is heavenly. And so he had him prepare a seat and he sat down. And he gave what is actually a fairly well-known quote. It's uh, something that we chant in the Thai tradition from time to time. He sat down and he taught him what is heavenly. And what is that which is truly good? Now, this, is, this is really the best part of the story is that we have this teaching uh, that that changes people from evil to good. And with, the, with this teaching he was able to convert this evil monster to goodness. So he said, Hiryotapasampana, someone who is endowed with hiryu, which means a disinclination to do evil deeds based on the nature of the evil deeds, which we normally call shame. When a person thinks of doing something evil, hurting someone else, or even getting upset or so on, and they feel ashamed of it, or they feel disinclined towards it. And they think that wouldn't be a good thing to do. Otapa, which we normally translate as fear or dread, but it's not actually fear. Otapa is when you think of the results of the evil deeds. You think of the results of hurting other people, and you're averse to those results. You don't do something because of the results. They go together. They're really the same thing. When you understand what makes things good and evil, a disinclination to do evil, which we normally look at in someone as shame and, fe and fear of, of evil, you know, God-fearing, as they say in, in theistic religions. So one who is endowed, endowed with these, sukha dhamma samahita, someone who possesses pure 
truth or pure teachings. It means they have wisdom and they understand what is right and what is wrong. They know the truth and they have a pure uh, code. Dhamma is actually in ancient times it meant code. So their code of conduct, their way of life is pure. Santo, they are calm and tranquil, so they've practiced meditation and they've come to see the raging mind and tame their mind and free themselves from the restlessness and the stress of an ordinary untrained mind. Sapurisa, they are a gentle person, they are a good person. Sapurisa loke, they are a good person in this world. Deva dhamma tivuchare. Such a person is called godly, heavenly. So even as a bodhisattva, he knew these things. Hiryo tapasampanna sukha dhamma samahita santo sapurisa loke deva dhamma tivuchare. And this moved the spirit. And the spirit said to him, well, you truly know what is godlike, and he said, "As as a result, as as a reward, I'm, I will free one of your son, one of your brothers. You pick one of your brothers, and I'll free one of them. As a as a reward for telling me what is godlike." And the bodhisattva said, "Well, very well, then free my youngest brother." And I think it was a test because the spirit scowled at him and said. Yeah, you, see, you, you, you know the truth, but you certainly don't practice it. You know it is godlike, but you certainly aren't godlike yourself. And he said, what do you mean? He said, well, you have two brothers and you pick the younger one to save when you, you, you don't respect seniority. You don't disrespect your el your, the elder of your two brothers. It's an important thing and it's an important, sort of an important moral code. I'm not sure how seriously that is, that's taken in Buddhism, but there is a sense that someone who is senior should be respected. Someone who is elder should to some extent be respected for being elder. It's not really a teaching in Buddhism, but um, because someone can be old and, and foolish, right, or young and wise. Like the Buddha, when he came to teach, all of his peers were very senior to him. And so he said to this, he said to this spirit, he said, no, I, I know what is right and I also practice it. He said, here's the deal. And he explained to him the situation. He said, we came to this forest because of our youngest brother. If we come back, the two of us, without him, you think anybody's going to believe us that, an oak, that a monster ate him? You know, he's, he's the trouble, he's, the, the tr he's our trouble. For sure they would think that we killed him and left his body in the forest. And the spirit was very much impressed by the wisdom and quick wit of the bodhisattva, and so he freed all three of them. And the bodhisattva said, look, you know, this isn't really a wholesome thing you're doing. This life of evil, this life of eating whoever comes to your, your pond is not really a way to live. It's not a way to become heavenly. Do you not want to be happy and do you not want a good future? Do you not want to find a path to greater things? And the Spirit said, yes, of course. That's why I was looking to learn what is God like. Well, now that you've heard it, don't you think it's time you should practice it? 
And don't you think it goes against these teachings to harm others? And so they managed to convince the spirit to come back to the palace with them. And they gave him his own, his own space and he ended up protecting them. And that's the story of the past. So, I mean, it's, it's, an, it's a nice little fairy tale. Um, but like all, whether it may have actually happened, I'm not, I'm not discounting the fact that there might be spirits and they might actually gobble up wanderers in forests. So this may very well have happened. I mean, we're supposed to believe that it happened, and I don't mind believing that. It's not really important. What's important is the teaching. We have the Deva Dhamma from this. Hiryotapasampana. And so that's a good one for us. But you know, the big teaching here is the Dhammapada verse, which is very important for us as meditators. And it doesn't matter what practices you have. I mean, monks are really bad about this. We get caught up in the fact that we're monks. We get even more caught up in our practices. There's so much ego that can arise from um, wearing rag robes or even just wearing monks' robes at all. That that's sort of a feeling that that comes with being a monk. There's a sense that that's how it appears to people living here in the West. Anyway, it appears to people that there's some. Kind, it's just a way of showing off or or ex exhibit exhibitionism that kind of thing. When in fact the idea of the behind the robes was something nondescript, something unassuming, something that makes you look like a like a bum, like a homeless person which in fact we are. But it, it happens for meditators as well. You know, It's easy to get caught up in when you put on the white clothes as a meditator, you can even get caught up in that. You see this in, in places where people wear the white clothes like a badge um, and where people sit and they can sit very straight and they're able to sit for long periods of time and you can become very much attached to that that ability. You know. Even even the Buddha said, even concentration, even when you're able to focus your mind and still your mind, you can even become attached to that. The Buddha discounts everything. He says well in this verse he specifically talks about practices that Buddhist monks are not really supposed to do, but the relationship with this story is he says to the monk, he says you know, just because you put on a robe doesn't make you a monk. And he talks about you know any extreme practice you could do. You could even lie on the ground. You could you know, any of these practices that other people do. They're they're all really not the not the path, not the way out of suffering. And he actually brings up a teaching that isn't at all related to the to the story, which is sort of the way because he's not really interested in. The, the details of what's been going on. He's not there to just admonish the monk. He's already done that. He's there to enlighten. And so he, he, I guess he must see something deeper in this monk that, that his real problem is doubt. And that's really the real problem with, with all of us. That's the, the, the condition that we come to meditation in. We come full of doubt. Doubt about suffering. Why do we suffer? Doubt about what is what is really good for me. You know? We know that we have problems. But we're just not sure how to fix them. We're sometimes even not sure we want to fix them. 
Now, when we hear the Buddha teaching about giving up sense pleasures, that's the most fearsome thing. There's so much uncertainty about spiritual practice, about Buddhism. We're not sure that we want to become free from suffering. We're not sure if we're able to. We have doubt about ourselves, doubt about our ability to follow the path. We have doubt about the path entirely. What am I doing here? Why am I walking back and forth? Why am I sitting? Why am I wasting my time with this? We have doubt about good things. We have doubt about bad things. We doubt about what is right. When something's right, we still doubt about it. We can even realize that something's right through the practice and then later doubt about it. Doubt is very dangerous. Doubt of the five hindrances, it's the most problematic because it's the one that's going to get you on the wrong path. It's the one that prevents you from seeing right from wrong. Doubt allows, doubt allows you to create a, a false dichotomy, sort of, of two things, a false equivalent between two things. You're unable to see when so, something that's better, you're not able to see that it's better. Something that's worse, you're not able to see that it's worse. Doubt is what confuses you. Doubt is the worst enemy in meditation. When people come here to do meditation courses, it's what causes you prob most problems. All the rest we can deal with, you know. It's, it's painful, it's stressful. Having to deal with anger, having to deal with desires. But until you give rise to doubt, you can deal with them, right? If you're confident, then you just be patient. And it's not pleasant. But you work it out, and eventually you overcome it. But doubt is very difficult to overcome. In fact, doubt is very easy to overcome. But unless you have the right tools, sort of the key to unlocking the doubt, it's near impossible. Something that is very... the biggest problem for meditators. Don't ever let yourself give in to doubt. So how do you overcome it? But doubt is actually very simple to overcome. And the practice that we do makes it incredibly simple. Like everything else, when you see doubt for what it is, when you look at doubt as just doubt, and you free it from the object that you're doubting about, it disappears. You see, the answer to doubt is to find a practice that gives you confidence, right? Find a practice that you can be sure about. Well, what practice could, you, could possibly give you certainty? Some people are resigned to the fact that they're never going to find that that you can never be sure of anything, right, they, they would say. And so the elegance of the Buddhist teaching is that it simply allows you to practice on the doubt and to see the doubt as it is. When you say to yourself, doubting, doubting, the doubt disappears. Once the doubt is gone, you ask yourself, do you feel better? Of course you feel better. You feel more at peace, you feel calmer, you feel less stress. That in and of itself is the practice. You don't need to go any further. You don't need to believe anything else. When you give up doubt, you're on, the, you're on the right path. If you can say to yourself, doubting, doubting, and suddenly feel confident, then you've learned all there is really to know about the, the path of the Buddha, the path of Buddhism. Because that very technique helps you overcome doubt, helps you overcome greed, anger, all kinds of delusion, helps you see things clearly, helps you let go, helps you free yourself. So it works with everything else. With everything else you be patient and 
whether it goes away or not, it keeps you objective. But we forget to do it with doubt. And with doubt we get caught up in it, we get lost in it. Because if you doubt, well, you know, should I really do it, how could you possibly say doubting, doubting? And so that's all you have to do is forget about your practice, forget about whatever it is that you're doubting yourself, you know, what's right, what's wrong. Focus on the doubt and you can be sure of that 100%. Because as soon as you say doubting, doubting, it disappears. You feel better. You freed yourself. So that's the lesson we take away from this, the reminder that the Buddha says. You can't be pure no matter what your practice is until you overcome doubt. Vitina kankang. You overcome doubt about what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's false. Because in the end there's very little that we, that, that we can know for ourselves. And there's very little that we need to focus on to see the truth for ourselves. There's so much that you'll never be able to get a clear answer on or, or a certainty on. And so if you get caught up in those things, should I do this, should I do that, there's so many questions that don't have clear answers to them. But the most important aspects of who we are and what we are and the, the, the nature of reality, what is truly real, because it's truly real, we can find answers and we can have certainty. We can see for ourselves because it's right there. It really does exist and it really does happen in a certain way. And as you observe it, no one can tell you that it's wrong. No one can tell you that you're wrong. No one needs to tell you what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's false, because you've seen for yourself. Quite simple. And if you keep it simple, don't you know, bother with all these other practices and so on. Don't focus your attention on finding a shortcut or a better way. If you're just patient and methodical, and you practice to overcome doubt in this way, eventually you'll become free, you'll find peace. If you get caught up in other goals and, and expectations and desires, very easy to get lost in doubt and lose your way. It's really the only thing that will cause you to fail. And why it causes you to fail is because you stop practicing. This type of meditation, you can't fail. It might take a long time, it might take lifetimes. But you can't fail unless you stop. And the only thing that's going to stop, cause you to stop really is doubt when you start to doubt it and you decide that it's not of any benefit, which can happen even though you see that it's beneficial. If you let doubt overwhelm you, it clouds your mind. Be very careful with this one. It's also a defining factor for an enlightened being, of course, because someone who has become at least a sotapanna has no more doubt. No more doubt because they've seen the truth. They've seen absolutely that this teaching leads to freedom from suffering because they've experienced freedom from suffering for themselves. So, that's the Dhammapada verse for this evening. Thank you all for tuning in. Wishing you all the best.